Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 64. Who still remembers Pompero Furpo, who booked a screw job in? No, this is not the Jim Cornette experience. But I am here to say that I still remember Pompero Furpo. And not only that, I have, as my guest this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, Mary Freeze, the daughter of the wild bull of the pompous himself, Pompero Furpo. And I'll be getting to that in just a moment. Just wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, it's very likely as you are listening to this going into the weekend, perhaps, I will be away because this is the weekend that Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, is being awarded in Lansing, Michigan, as one of the notable Michigan books of 2022 at the Lansing branch of the Library of Michigan. I will be there for the ceremony. There's about 20 or 30 books that have been selected. I'm grateful to Dave Supermouth Drayson, a.k.a. Brzezinski, for nominating my book and pushing for this book to get the award. I'm going to be out there for a couple of days, basically for the entire weekend. Maybe I'll run into some listeners. Who knows? If you listen to the show, if you like the book, come by and say hello. I'd be happy to shake your hand and talk to you. Anyway, want to mention another book, actually. If you will permit me, to digress from wrestling for just a moment. My newest book, which is of the non-wrestling variety, believe it or not, there's other things in life than wrestling, I know. And that other thing is comic books, of course, because my new book, which is called Superheroes, The History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro, is now coming out. It is available, according to Amazon, as of May 1st from Roman and Littlefield Publishers. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. I finally got my sample copies in the mail over the Easter holiday. I'm super excited to be holding the book in my hand. It's beautiful. It has a full-color photo section in the center. It covers the entire history of not just comic books, beyond comics, the history of superheroes in popular culture, going back to ancient times, all the way up to the present day, the, the MCU and all that good stuff. So if that's your thing, you might want to pre-order the book. I promise there won't be another pre-order disaster like there was with Blood and Fire. You can go to um, Amazon and pre-order it, and I hope you enjoy it. And then from there, of course, I move on to to continuing to work on my Gorilla Monsoon book. But I wanted to plug the Superheroes book because it will be out as of May 1st, and I'm holding it in my hand, and it is beautiful. All right, enough navel-gazing. Let us get to this week's conversation. Mary Freeze, who some of you may have heard a few years ago on the 605 
Super Podcast, has many fond and warm memories of her father, one of the great legends of wrestling in the 1960s and 70s. She has a lot of great insights on his career, on his attitudes, on the legacy of the man. And I was happy to talk to her about all that stuff. And I'd be happy also to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so I am very lucky this week to be able to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, Mary Freeze, who you may not know her name, but I can almost guarantee that if you are listening to this show, then you know her father, because he was one of the, without question, major wrestling attractions of the 60s and 70s, one of the classic wild men of professional wrestling. I'm talking about the wild bull of the Pampas himself. Some knew him as Ivan the Terrible. Some knew him as the Missing Link. Most knew him as Pampero Furpo. So, Mary, thank you for coming on to Shut Up and Wrestle. Hi, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, it's it's my pleasure, really, because uh, as we were saying bef- just before we started, um, obviously, I heard you a, a few years ago on the 605, but also, you know, we had uh, I had tried to connect with you when I was working on Blood and Fire, the book on the Sheik. And, you know, I was I was I was so hoping that I would have been able to talk to your dad because, you know, he was gosh, I mean, him and Flying Fred Curry were the only Detroit headliners left, honestly, like main event headliners. So it was, it really was um, something that I was, I mean, a lot of wrestling fans were sad about. I mentioned him as one of the, he's actually one of the dedications for the book on the dedication page. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm sorry we lost that opportunity as well. Like you said, there are so few guys still alive from the Detroit territory and Sheik, and he certainly had a lot of good uh, stories and did a lot of business with Sheik and he loved Fred Curry and Bull Curry's favorite family of his. I was so glad to to talk to Fred actually. That was like, that was probably one of the best interviews that I did for the book because, you know, I mean like there were some other people that I spoke to that worked with Sheik and, but, but usually they were people who, you know, in this day and age, like they were kind of rookies and he was like the old veteran. There weren't a lot of people that were peers of the Sheik. You know, there's not, <laughs> that's a very short group of people. So, but Fred was great. And I actually got a chance to meet him recently and his son, Nick, we had, we had lunch with Tom Burke and he's just a, an amazing guy. How nice. There's so many wonderful historians out of Detroit too. Um, like you said, Tom Burke, and they're just keeping that history alive. And I was on Facebook with a personal account. I've deleted it maybe seven or eight years ago, but I connected with Nick when I was on Facebook and he wrote some really nice messages to my father that I was able to share with him. We lost my dad January 9th, 2020. Mm. So I think I connected with Nick probably 2014, 2015, and he passed along some messages from Fred and my dad just lit up. That was a real heyday for him working with the Sheik and in Detroit and always just great crowds at Cobo Arena and then working in the other, the surrounding territories in Toronto and Ohio. And that was just a really integral part of his career. I remember when I was working on the book, people would ask me, everybody likes to do the Mount Rushmore question of, of Mount Rushmore of everything, right? So the Mount Rushmore of Detroit wrestling 
And I had him on there. I mean, obviously it was Sheik and Bobo Brazil. Yes. And I think my other two, I think I had the Curries as like one head. I didn't want to like. Yeah. Split them up. <laughs> and then I had Pampero Furpo and I might have Mighty Igor like poking his head over the top of the, <laughs> of the mountain if I could add like one more. But, you know, and something funny too, uh, just total coincidence, because I, I just recently announced that my next book is going to be about Gorilla Monsoon. So I was mm-hmm. trying to find like whatever like matches of his I could watch and things I could just kind of catch up on. And there's a WWF video from the 80s. It was called like, I, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but it was called Wrestling's like, Strangest, yeah. Strongest, Smallest. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and your dad is on it, which I didn't yes. expect because I, I knew that your dad had worked for the McMahons and it wasn't like, like a huge part of his career, but, uh, but, but he passed through there. And when I did the research, I looked at, I think that it looks like there must've been some kind of a, of like a deal with the Sheik going on. Cause this was like early seventies. He was working for the Sheik. And then all of a sudden he came in and he did like a program with Pedro Morales and did mm-hmm. a few dates at the garden and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. He actually worked also with Pedro in 1960 in Washington, D.C. and maybe Baltimore. And one of his um, there's a little card of my dad on eBay and on the back, it said he's one of the first one of the only people to beat Pedro Morales. And when they worked in the garden in the 70s, he lost to Pedro. Pedro was the champion. But in 1960, my dad always referred to Pedro as a kid. And I think that was from, he's a good kid. He's such a nice kid. And he always said the same thing about Freddie Curry. He's such a nice kid. He's such a good kid. And so my dad worked with Pedro in 1960. It was Washington, D.C., like I said. And I think, I want to say Baltimore is on the East Coast. And he beat Pedro twice in um in 1960. And then they worked again in the seventies, just somebody my dad always really appreciated. And yeah, Vince McMahon senior was the promoter for the fights with Pedro in the seventies. And my dad said he appreciated that Vince McMahon senior just stayed out of how they wanted to do the match. And he was able to talk to Pedro and just the psychology of my dad being the heel in Madison square garden with all the different Puerto Rican fans. And Pedro was such a good baby face. And so my dad appreciated they had some creative license in working those matches. And he also remembers Vince Jr. Um, Dr. Mike Leno, who's a favorite mm. of the 605 show. <laughs> Love Dr. Yes. Mike. He he sent me, he always sends <laughs> me different clippings and he emailed me the interview that Vince McMahon did when Vince was on the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine. And the interviewer in Muscle and Fitness asked Vince, did you ever feel small next to the wrestlers when you were younger? And Vince said, actually, with his height, he said, sometimes I was the same size as they were or even taller. And he said, sometimes we'd have to make the, he said, we'd have to make the wrestlers appear taller. So he said, for instance, Pompero Furbo, we had him standing on a fruit crate, like an apple box to make <laughs> him look as tall as Vince Jr. And anyway, somebody, uh, my dad had fond memories of working with both the McMahons. Jr. was doing the interviews and those, um, you know, more not backstage, but he wasn't in front of the camera as much, I guess, unless he was doing an interviewing role when my dad was working for senior. So. That's uh, And that's something, actually, that's interesting to me because I, um, you know, I was not watching wrestling at that time. I was not born at that time, but <laughs> I, because of your, your dad's, I mean, I, I knew about your dad and just from studying wrestling history and stuff and his aura as being this wild man and this, and this just crazed kind of monster, you know, with the hair and everything, I did not realize 
that he was a shorter guy. He was he was not for some reason. And this is maybe because I'm I'm it's before my time. I just imagine that he must have been this giant monster of a guy, you know, well, like when you look at him and you don't have any any frame of reference, you're going, oh, man, that guy's like like a Brody or something like that. But he was a smaller guy. He just had this larger than life aura around him. Yeah. When you mentioned Brody, that's exactly who I was thinking of. And it, you're you're right. He always appeared to be even in person. He just appeared to be taller and larger, like you said, his aura and his persona. And I think the hair added a good few inches yes. and just his his stockiness and the way that he moved and just very dynamic when he worked all over in different territories in Hawaii and Detroit and Ohio and Toronto, like I'd mentioned on the East Coast in Puerto Rico, he was often teamed with bigger, uh, with taller men. For instance, in Japan, he had a stint managing Plowboy Fraser, who later in Japan, he was called the convict and Plowboy Fraser, And then he became Uncle Elmer in the WWE. And he was Andre size, big John stud size, you know, Plowboy Fraser, I think was six foot eight, six, I mean, just big, big tall guys, six foot seven. Yes. And so my dad is a foot shorter than he is, you know, but he just, he was so broad and he had such a thick neck and broad shoulders and he just, he held his own. And then my dad also worked many programs with Andre and he really liked Andre. They worked together as they were tag team, uh, Andre and my dad versus people like the Sheik and whoever the Sheik was teaming with maybe Abdullah. And the other thing that my dad uh, other person my dad wrestled with a lot in the Detroit territory who was a big man was Tex McKenzie. So again, you don't really realize maybe how tall Tex was or how uh, mm. short my dad was until they're teamed up. But in, um, you know, he had a lower center of gravity, I guess, and was able <laughs> to do those moves, like, you know, knock people down. But he also, he won the championship belt in the Olympic auditorium in the seventies in Los Angeles from Ernie Ladd, another big guy, the big cat, Ernie Ladd, really tall. And then he also teamed with Ernie Ladd and Bruiser Brody in Puerto Rico, late seventies, I think 79, 1980. I apologize. I have a chronology and I, a really nice wrestling fan sent me a detailed chronology of many of my dad's matches. And I have them usually on my phone. And right before the interview, I was shopping with my daughter. She's thir uh, almost 13. And I, I paid with my phone using Apple Pay and I left the phone right on the counter. And it's just a store right across the street and they grabbed my phone for me. But I apologize because I have all the dates on the chronology and I was going to write those down. And um, that was that my is, mistake. But he, yeah, he, did, he did the three-man tags in Puerto Rico with... Bruiser Brody and uh, Ernie Ladd, or maybe it was Japan. Shoot, again, I hope I wish that I had that. <laughs> I wish I had my little cheat sheet with me, but I know that he tagged with both of them, and um, I want to say Puerto Rico, but it no. may have been Japan. You might be able to to settle something for me, actually. That I sure. you know, because because in doing the Sheik book, a lot of it was like I've told people, a lot of it was archaeology because there weren't yes people I could talk to directly, so it was a lot of like you know, well, circumstantially piecing things together. And so, you know, since I, I couldn't talk to your dad, but from looking at their chronologies, Sheik and and your dad, I kind of pieced together because, you, you know, what the Sheik would do, right, is because he was the top heel and he was the top star in the territory. He would, uh, from time to time, bring in another heel 
that would become like his tag team partner. And then, of course, eventually, inevitably, they would turn on each other. And usually the other heel would go face because the Sheik never wanted to lose his heel heat. So, like, your dad was one of those. He was on that list of, like, you know, uh, Fred Curry was another one. Killer Brooks was another one. But what what I sort of insinuated was that it looked like they encountered each other when they were wrestling either in California or Hawaii. I don't know if that would have been the case because it. I think it was California. They were there at the same time. And then before you know it, all of a sudden, Furpo's in Detroit. So it seemed to me that he must have crossed paths with them there and just said, wow, this is a guy that I could bring in. He he's even looks even crazier than I am. I could bring <laughs> him in and make some money with this guy. I don't know if, if, if that was the timeline or not. You know, it sounds very probable. I wish I had a clear answer for you, but I do know that they crossed paths in the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. They also did that subsequent to my dad appearing in Detroit. So I'm not exactly sure when the timeline was. And I also know the same thing in Hawaii, that they wrestled against each other in Hawaii. But I don't know where the introduction came from. I wish I knew. And then I I had to Google it myself. And it was uh, Brody, Ernie Ladd, and my dad wrestling in Japan for All Japan Wrestling at... You'll know how to say this, Brian Karakuin, Karakuin Hall. Karakuin, yeah. You, you give Karakuin me a lot Hall. of credit, believe me. But yeah, I've been in close <laughs> All Japan, <enough. laughs> 1980, All Japan Wrestling. And it was, um, and they were also wrestling against big guys. It says uh, Giant Baba, Jumbo Shruta, and uh, Tenru, Janichiro Tenru. All yeah, pretty guys, wild. Yeah. So yeah, all big guys. Then you've got Brody, Ernie Ladd, and my dad. Um, yeah, pretty wild. It was a two out of three falls match, and they defeated my dad and his teammates. So, anyway, I had to look that up. I just, no, <laughs> but fine. yeah, I wish I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew where he met um, the Sheik. I know that my dad really respected. I, in that era, people, of course, were kayfabe, but Sheik just took it to a different level. And my dad did that as well. There's great stories out there from different wrestling fans who were photographers and became journalists like George Napolitano and Bill Apter. And he just stayed in character a lot of the time until he was really sure that whoever he was talking to was smart to the business. And that included the family. That included my sister and my brother and me. So my brother was born in 1970. My sister was 1973. I was born in 1975. And my dad effectively retired in 81. He did a couple matches here and there. His last match was 86. But he even just kayfabed around the family. When I'd ask him things when I got into middle school about was it fake? And he just would say that was a touchy word and he would just shake his head no. And he really kept what he called his professional ethic even around the family. And he respected that about Sheik and just knew that Sheik really knew how to do business, how to draw a gate. And that was something I think they really connected in. And then also my, you know, the Sheik's Lebanese heritage and my dad, they lived in, my dad was born in Argentina, but his parents are of Armenian descent and they left Turkey during the genocide. They were Armenian and they went to Beirut and they lived in Lebanon before going to Argentina. And so they had a very rich cultural background. And my dad thinks saw Lebanon at that time as just a refuge for Christians, for people who were leaving, for Armenians who had to leave the area. And he connected with the Kuris in that regard also. Yeah, that, that, I didn't know about the Furpo connection with Lebanon. I knew about the Curries. There's like I, I call it like the the Lebanese mafia of wrestling. Just all <laughs> yes, these guys. Because yes. also Lou Sahadi, the magazine editor who just yes. passed away, 
him yeah. and Ashik were like best buddies because they were they were Syrian. They were all Syrian. And um, yes, yeah, Lou wrote but, a fantastic profile on my dad because his son is Dave Saadi from. Yes. I think worked impact. And yeah, Lou wrote I, a, yeah. just a and fantastic. I, I worked with him. I worked with Dave also oh. at WWE when I was there. Too. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that's funny. The Lebanese mafia. My dad had a real <laughs> affinity for those people like in that Middle Eastern area and his mother and father grew up in, they were born in Turkey, but again, of Armenian descent. So they grew up with all that same cuisine. And then even going to Argentina, just um, then having the Latin American influence. My dad's name was Juan, J-U-A-N, even though our last name is Armenian, Kachmanian. So he also had a real affinity for the Spanish uh, speaking like Latino wrestlers like Pedro and um, connected with uh, like the Colognes in Puerto Rico and the Guerreros in Mexico. And he, it was really, he had such a rich cultural background. You know, there was the Middle Eastern influence, but then also growing up with Spanish, you know, Spanish and Armenian were his first two languages. And that helped him connect with so many different people all around the world. And I loved, you know, because even from listening to the interview you did with Brian last, like, I I love the fact that your dad, he seemed to have really, you know, he's from the old school. Like he had very traditional values. And I, I mean that in a good way, very, you know, yeah. a, a, a really stand up guy. And like you said, protected the business, but also had a lot of respect when it was earned. Like one of the mm-hmm. things that I found so moving was, and I forget where maybe you told this story or maybe I read it. I can't remember of, of your dad running into Bruno San Martino at one of the WWE halls of fame. Cause I, I, I remember seeing pictures of when your dad came out. And by the way, of course he was unrecognizable. If you only knew him from his wrestling days, you would never know that this was the same guy, but just how he, he ran into Bruno. And of course, as we know, Bruno hadn't really had any dealings with WWE for many years and I'm assuming they hadn't seen each other probably in decades. And your dad just was in awe of Bruno and just falling over himself and just so excited and happy to see this, this guy who he clearly had so much respect for. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Bruno actually was, um, when my dad was in New York with, you know, Raka gave my dad his entree into New York. They're both Argentine and Bruno was, working sometimes the undercard or not the main, like the semi-main. And that was when my dad was um, on top against Raka in 1960s in New York. And so he worked programs with Bruno on the East Coast and really was happy for Bruno's success and enjoyed, again, kind of a common cultural connection with Bruno being Italian and my dad multilingual, also speaking Italian and being a family guy like Angelo Poffo, he also connected with just that those old school values um, really respected. My dad really respected Bruno, his hard work, his values, his professional ethic, as my dad referred to it. And it was such a that was such a nice weekend because we were in I live in San Jose and WrestleMania was in San Jose in 2015. And that was the year that Randy Savage was inducted posthumously and Hulk Hogan did the induction and Lanny Poffo, Randy's brother, you know, um, accepted the award and the Poffo's are just wonderful. I, Lanny's just was such a great friend. I'm heartbroken about his passing and just still shocked about that. Um, but Lanny, when Lanny came, he said, I you know, would love to have your dad 
as much as he's able to, you know, come and enjoy the event and see people. And so that was just such a great moment for my dad. My my brother also lives here in town. So my brother brought my dad. I said, you have to bring dad. Bruno's here. And at that time, my dad was 85 and he was always ambulatory, able to walk. Sometimes he would use a cane or a walker, but he, his memory wasn't as, as good as it was, he was kind of losing a little bit of his cognitive sharpness. And he always remembered all of the old things. So if I pulled something up with Bruno San Martino or Bobby Heenan or Nick Bockwinkle or Luthez, he always wanted to watch the Luthez, Buddy Rogers match and Pat O'Connor and Luthez. He loved all of those things and he could still identify the announcer and identify the venue and talk about. And so that was just a real thrill because it was, you could just see it was a, a heart connection and a soul connection. And Bruno too, he said, Pompero Furpo. And he said, oh my gosh. And just with his accent and they embraced and Roddy Piper was standing there and I, I just was enjoying it so much. My brother said, you should film some of this. And I put it, I have a Twitter account that it's just as Pompero Furpo. It's P-F-I-R-P-O number one at on, on Twitter. So it's P Furpo with the numeral one, P Furpo one. And my brother said, you should videotape this. And I was so sorry that I didn't get more of the footage, but I put that little video of my dad and Bruno shaking hands and with Piper in the background. And um, my dad wrestled in for the LaBelles in Los Angeles and Piper was there in that territory because I was trying to figure out how did he know, you know, I know Piper started so young and he was always yeah. my favorite growing up. My, my wrestling fandom was mid late 1980s and early 1990s when I was in middle school and high school. And those were the the WWF was what was on TV then. And that was, that was my wrestling fandom. So Piper was always one of my favorites. And I was thinking, where did, where did they cross paths? And Piper said it was for LaBelle in, uh, in Los Angeles. And there's, I have um, Jim Cornette sent me a DVD with some footage that I put on YouTube with my dad in the Olympic auditorium and it's silent, looks like maybe eight millimeter film. And I don't know who shot that film. I don't know. It's very, um, like looks very shaky. Maybe it was somebody who had a video camera sitting in the audience, but yeah, there's a, yes, there's a pull apart with my dad and the golden Greek, John Tolos. And a guy comes running in and I couldn't figure out who it was. And I almost am 99% sure it was Roddy Piper who comes in during like the pull apart, you know, to pull them apart from each other. And right, I right. thought, Oh, that that's gotta be Piper. That's gotta be him. So yeah, just that, that was such a great memory. My dad really enjoyed seeing people. And we saw Bret Hart also. My dad worked very uh, short for Stu and um, just so nice. There aren't many of those guys left, like those second, third generation. It's no. just fantastic. And No, I'm discovering yeah. that the hard way, writing these books, yeah. that um, it's we're, we're losing people. And it's so important to, to preserve the stories and, and the perspectives and things because, you know, otherwise it's gone. Like I've said many times, you know, and uh, it's interesting to me because you were saying how you know, you became a fan as a kid later on. And of course, you were born at a point where you probably don't remember much of your dad's career, if anything. So did you two ever did you ever have conversations with him like that? Like because I remember even I, I've even seen interviews with like Cody Rhodes and people like that, where where he kind of missed most of his dad's career, too, yes. where they will say. Daddy, were you a wrestler like, you know, like Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker like that? Like, did you have conversations like that with your dad? And he, and it, where he would be like, well, it really was very different back then. You know? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. You know, I did because my dad kept a lot of his clippings in scrapbooks and we had two bookcases in our living room full of these scrapbooks. And I was the most interested of the three of us kids in my dad's career. And I'm 
a reader and I love looking through books, looking at scrapbooks, looking at yearbooks, just reading. So I, I would take those scrapbooks down and I would try to make sense of them and look through them. And there are all these, <laughs> all these <laughs> pictures of, um, you know, my dad, like his face covered in blood and these things saying like, I will kill the sheik and clippings and photographs. And it was, I was 11, 12 years old and I was looking at this and it was kind of scary and kind of disconcerting. I'm thinking all these people wanted to kill my dad. And I was very, very much thought it was mostly serious. You know, like Mm -hmm. these were people who, not that he was doing business with, but these were people who didn't like him. Like Killer Brooks hated him and Tex McKenzie hated him. And, you know, luckily he was able to work with the Sheik, but then they got in a fight and they start. So it was, I was just kind of believing the storylines and he never particularly smartened me up and said, well, this is how it started. This is, he never did that. And maybe also because at that time he was working at the post office after his wrestling career. And I think he just kept, he just put it behind him in a lot of ways. And I don't know if that was because psychologically it was just a protective thing. Like this is like my, my old life and this is something new, but I, he didn't seem to struggle with it, like to struggle with making a transition into a, you know, kind of mundane job at the post office versus the glamour, because I think he, there was, he always had so much charisma and people continued to recognize him, even though he didn't have the long hair, he had the beard for a while. And even just his face, his eyes and his voice and wherever he went, people were just drawn to him and called him champ. And he always trained, always worked out, was very fit and people in the gym knew he was a wrestler. So I think he still had enough enjoyment of the past that it, didn't seem to bother him that much, but at the same time, he wasn't super interested in maintaining a bunch of ties and doing appearances. And I think when a lot of that became more popular, he was in his late seventies, even like early eighties. He went, when he was 80, he went to a fan convention in Atlanta and did some signings. And I said, were you, I, when he was getting ready to go, I took him to the airport and I said, I don't remember that you were really, uh, that you worked a lot in Atlanta or are, are you, do you think that people will, you know, that you'll have fans there and people will know and remember you. And he just, uh, I don't really know if he, or maybe I didn't ask him before he left. I think I, when he got back, I said, how was that? And he got so emotional. He said, there was just a line out the door waiting to talk to him. And there was, it's those storied accounts of somebody with an elderly grandfather, great grandfather, and then their child, and then the grandson, and just how the wrestling fans are so generational. And it didn't occur to me also that Atlanta is a real melting pot, and you have transplants just like you do here in the Bay Area. So he said, there were so many people lining out the door, and they said, I saw you in New York, I saw you in Detroit, I saw you in Hawaii. And he said he was my dad was very emotional. He was very sentimental and sensitive and he was tearing up telling me about it. And he said, I can't even talk about it just because his heart was so touched and so full by that encount- those encounters with the fans. And I thought, I wish he would have done a little bit more of that. I think that was really good for him. And, um, you know, he didn't stop working at the post office until he was 78. That was when he retired. He was still very robust and very strong. He didn't deliver letters, but he carried the mail sacks and processed the mail. And he, I think that was also part of it, just that he was had a very strong work ethic and he was dedicated to his job. And um, he always worked the graveyard shift. I was going to say his nine to five, but it was like nine at night to five in the morning. Uh, so I think that was part of it too, was that he wasn't one to take a bunch of time off and go make appearances, but he was... He was asked to do that. He would get different in, you know, invitations from different promoters and things. And um, I think maybe if he would have done that, that 
had that experience that he had in Atlanta when he was younger, maybe 70 instead of 80, he could have enjoyed a few more of those because he always loved the fans. He was always grateful to the wrestling business. He wasn't somebody who was bitter. He didn't have any um, really debilitating injuries. You know, he lived, he passed just shy, shy of his 90th birthday. And I was, I accompanied him to different doctor appointments and he would had he would kind of wince when he would get up and down with his knees and his hips and it was like bone on bone but that also is from mm-hmm. being almost 90 years old and always being active and athletic his whole life you know I have friends at the gym in their early 50s late 40s who've had hip and knee replacements and I always wish he would have taken advantage of that too I think it would have helped his mobility as he got older but he was um, did he ever not really open to it did he ever make it out to cauliflower alley club yeah, he did. In fact, that, yeah, I have some really, really great oh, footage good. of that. On If you go on YouTube and you Google Pampero Furpo Cauliflower Alley, um, one of my friends who lives in Milwaukee is a big wrestling fan. His name's Gino Salmone, and he was one of the people who was <laughs> instrumental. You know, Gino, <laughs> he was instrumental in the, the statue of the Crusher yes, that was yes. made. In, yeah, so Gino's wonderful, and he's the at-the-movies guy in Milwaukee, does the entertainment on the news there. And he, I said, I have this footage on an old VHS tape of when my dad went to Cauliflower Alley. He said, send it to me. I'll digitalize, digitize it for you. So he helped me put that footage up. And he went to Cauliflower Alley twice. And I think it was back-to-back years, I think 2000 and then 2001. And in 2000, he went with Joanne Dusick because the Dusick family, Joe Dusick, the promoter in Omaha, and the Dusick Riot Squad were the tag team with uh, Joe M.L. Ernie and Rudy um, they were really good fa- friends of my father's. They Rudy Dusick helped train my father. He worked with Rudy and Ernie and ML and Joe. Joe was the promoter in Omaha, and my dad yeah. made quite a few appearances there. So Joanne was honored. The family was honored in some way. I know they're also in the George Tragos Luthes Hall of Fame. Um, but my dad went with her to Cauliflower Alley, and she's wonderful. I talk with her. My dad, I, we continue to talk with her every Sunday. I pick up my dad and bring him over. He'd say, you know, he'd ask me, I call, he has two sisters, call Rosie, call Lucy, call Joanne. You know, she really was like a sister to him. And so I, after he passed, I told her, I said, I just feel like it's Sunday and I need to call you because I want to see how you're doing. So she's wonderful. And she knows so much history too. It's just wonderful talking to her. And anyway, Joanne Dusick is the only child of uh, Joe Dusick and, you know, both of her parents are passed. And so she went with my dad to Las Vegas and he was with her when she accepted an award in 2000. And then in 2001, he was awarded. It was just an honorary. It was like something Nick Bockwinkle was in charge of Cauliflower Alley and he wrestled all over with my dad. They went to Australia, they went to Hawaii, just um, they really had an affinity for each other. And so he and that's when that's gave when my dad was still there too. Des was still around at that time too. I'm pretty sure, right? In 2001, yes, because we yeah. have some really good photos of him with Luthez, with um, guys from he with the Crusher, with Luthez, with guys from San Francisco, like I think Kenji Shibuya is in some of those photos. Guys from Hawaii, really, really great photos. Again, supplied by Dr. Mike Leno, so I have to give him credit for those. <laughs> but even uh, he has some great photos of Danny Hodge. He has a photo with Danny Hodge and Jim Cornette. So he went to Cauliflower Alley twice. You know, in 2000. I think it was 2000 and 2001. And there's some footage of him with, um, oh my gosh, so many people with, he saw Tex McKenzie there. He saw um, Antonio Inoki and he talked about first seeing Inoki in 1968 in Japan when Inoki was in his twenties. And he, my dad really, really connected. He saw wrestling 
definitely saw it as a business. Like he really saw that as a business and he always would do business and he respected people. He said, Baba Inoki, um, people like El Santo in Mexico, he just said they were untouchable, like true professionals. You know, they knew what they were doing. And same thing with Sheik as a promoter, like he knew what he was doing. He knew how to draw the gate. He knew how to, um, like the psychology with the fans. So yeah. And, and the one thing my dad did tell me when I was a kid, he would just try to break it down for me. Like he'd say, okay, you have in wrestling, you have the people who are like the preliminary boys on the undercard. Then he said, you'd have the, you know, maybe a special attraction. You'd have a semi-main, you'd have a main event. He said, then you'd have a box office draw. And he always said, modesty and aside, I was a box office draw. And I said, okay, so all <laughs> well, of the, a lot he, of the cards that <laughs> he was not wrong. I mean, that's a fact, right? <laughs> a lot of the cards that he kept, he was on the main event. And sometimes people will tag my P for Bo one at, you know, my Twitter account and they'll send me cards. And I say, oh, I've never seen that one. Cause my dad wasn't on the main or, you know, maybe he was like the semi main or right underneath. I said, Oh, my dad didn't bother keeping that one. But he, uh, another thing that he kept was he kept different like visa applications and um, other souvenirs and personal photos and things like that. And so in one of his, I think it was an application for a visa to wrestle in Japan and it said occupation and he said, professional wrestler, main eventer in any stadium. <laughs> That's right. You know, like that. Did, uh, I always really like that. <laughs> did you ever have a chance to to meet the Sheik at all? Or was that a little bit before? I didn't. No, I never did. And they kind of had a falling out, I think, oh, over no. money at one point. Oh, everyone um, did. My, everyone did with yeah. the Sheik. <laughs> And my dad was so always like, don't tell anybody. You know, so I feel bad, like talking out attorneys, like don't ever tell anybody any of this. But, and I don't know if it was um, maybe a payout or something. He, always, he used the, the number $8,000. And I don't know what that was. Was it that he was, um, he, he said like, you know, he smoked me out of 8,000. So I don't know what that meant. I don't know if that meant that he was promised a certain number and it fell short of that. I don't know if that the gate ended up being bigger and he was supposed to get a bigger percentage. I don't know if that was some kind of like a, I, I don't know what it was, but I think after that, my dad um, was angry and, you know, he, he liked, I mean, he liked Joyce. He liked the Sheik. Again, they did business, but I think at the end there was some falling out over payday well, and they didn't. Um, yeah. Well, I know just even from looking when I was writing the book that your dad was one of the last of the real headliners that was still coming in when Sheik's business was going down the tubes the funks were also in that group like there were a few mm-hmm. people that were still loyal to him and unfortunately he look i mean it's a fact he even burned those people like like the funks mm-hmm. have a have the famous story that they went in there towards the end and they were trying to help him out and Sheik's son basically tried to pretend that the cash box got stolen out of the yeah you know and, and i mean these were his one of his closest friends in the business and so, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, but I did notice that your dad was coming in like in, in the late 70s. 77, Nobody, yeah. right. I mean, the last, actually the last Kobo date I found for your dad, because I was just refreshing my memory even before we did this, was 1979 against, ironically, Randy Savage. And mm. that was like the last year of big time wrestling, basically. And, okay. and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And I, I've heard that story about the cash box and um, <laughs> another family, the Funk family. How can you not like love them and just everything they gave to the business? And um, yeah, my dad wrestled with them in Texas with Senior, Dory Senior, you know, wow. Dory Junior and Terry. Yeah. And Junior was on some of the cards in 
Kobo. And I think also Terry Funk, again, I wish I had that chronology with me. I would look up and give you specific dates, but what a, what a wonderful family. What just, again, true professionals who knew how to draw a gate and psychology. And I, I've heard that story, like you said, about the cash box. So yeah, he, um, that he didn't talk much about chic with that. I think he was angry or annoyed by that having happened. And um, I'm sure if they would have crossed paths, they would have been able to settle, you know, settle things. Yeah. He, he at just, least in a business way. He burned everybody. I mean, he, well, I should, that's the greatest pun. I didn't mean to make a pun. There, but, <laughs> he no, did burn he my did, father he, too. He burned everybody. And, um, but even Bobo Brazil, that's another thing I found when I was writing the book. Now wow. they were, they were the best of friends. I mean, kayfabe. Uh, yes. Bobo stayed at the Farhat's house when he was going through his divorce. I mean, they were really tight. And then again, towards the end, payoffs, money. I remember basically piecing together that for the last Kobo show that the Sheik ever did, and he knew it was going to be his last show, he wanted the main event to be him and Bobo, like for old time's sake, the Sheik versus Bobo mm -hmm. Brazil. And Bobo just kind of refused to come. And um, mm -hmm. he, it wasn't that he wasn't working because I checked Bobo's schedule at that time. And ironically, he was taking dates for Dick the Bruiser, which was not that far mm -hmm. away in Indiana. He could have very easily come out to Detroit. And instead, the Sheik wound up wrestling. I forget who it was, but it was a, it was a mid-card wrestler. It really wasn't a very memorable match to go out on. And it was very mm -hmm. telling that even kind of maybe his closest friend uh, didn't really want to associate with him at that point. Wow. He, you know, so I think your dad was one of many. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That's good to know. My dad was always, like I said, just don't say anything about it. But he said, a, he said that a lot about things that are common knowledge you know, that are, <laughs> or like that are out on the, and I said, dad, it's okay. Like I remember him saying also like in a very hushed whisper that Pat Patterson was homosexual. I said, I know daddy wrote a book about, he said, but like, don't tell anyone, you know, cause that would hurt business, right? Like don't tell anyone about that. And I said, well, he came out with a book that the cover what was the title of Pat's autobiography. Like, um, my way or uh, I would I, oh, like um, just coming out or something, right? Yes. Like, something I don't like know that. what it was, but yes. Anyway, so that's pretty much common knowledge. And, you know, his partner's name is on the internet and all these. So anyway, he was very, uh, another, another thing about when Sheik burned him, this was, it was funny too. I think I had told this story, but I'll make it short. My dad had a picture of him in a scrapbook from the Body Press magazine in Detroit and he had bandages all over his face and then he had these black sunglasses over the bandages. It was like a really funny picture. And Brian Last actually sent it to me because I was describing it to him or he sent it. And I looked closely at the nurse on the left and the right and one was his sister and one was his mother. So in the photo, I sent it to my mom. I said, look, there's Aunt Rosie and there's Nona, like my grandmother. And I said, this is so funny. And my mom said, but you can't tell anybody. This was just a couple of years ago. You can't tell anybody that that was your grandmother and that was your aunt you know and so again like even she just being uh, my my dad and my mom divorced when I was 10 but they were amicable until his passing and even my mom at this age you know she's 73 so they, were, they had a 20 years age difference my dad was wow. 20 years older than my mom yeah and even she is like don't you know, don't say anything about it. And I think for her, it's almost like protecting his legacy. And I said, even protecting his legacy, people know about kayfabe and they know back then that it wasn't, you know, they, people wouldn't be surprised that that was his sister. Like they know that he wasn't actually burned by the sheep. Like people know that now, but that's still right. just kind of ingrained in her, um, in her psyche that, you know, you don't actually, tell the tales. Now that I think about it, there is a photo in the book, um, blood and fire of, 
the sheik throwing a fireball at your dad. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't know if you've seen that. It, it, it's very rare to have a photo because it's hard to capture when it happens, you know, but it's the most perfect photo and I had to use it and you can see it. It's like flying in midair. You see your dad from the back, but the hair, you know who it is. And it's such a great picture now that I think about it. Yeah, it is. It is on my list to read Blood and Fire. I teach middle school and this the last yeah. couple of years have been so crazy with the pandemic that I'm it's it's uniquely exhausting. My sixth graders this year are super, super sweet. And it's just a challenge like the, you know, the, the learning that's been lost with online school, the socio-emotional effects of the pandemic for the teachers and the students that I'm on the weekend. I'm like never I've been teaching since I was 22 and I'll be 48. So this is my 26th year teaching in the last few years have been just absolutely exhausting in this unique way. You know, I used to be able to read books over the weekend. Now it's like, let me just get to summer. So it's on my list to read Blood and Fire. And I appreciate so much that you're keeping those stories. I really do. I really am so appreciative. And I learn a lot just by like reading about the, the, from the research that you've done and just um, listening to the wrestling podcast. Like I love the Arcadian Vanguard channel and your podcast that you have and all the work that Brian Last and Jim Cornette do with preserving the history. It's um, I like how Corny always said that wrestling is a unique American art form, you know, and, and where else do you, do you get these stories and get to hear all these personalities and all the characters and just really appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. And uh, well, I mean, you're very welcome. It's my honor to do it. It's not, it's, it's my pleasure and my honor to do it. It's not even, you know, I almost feel like it's my responsibility to do it because <laughs> you start to look around and you, you always have this attitude. And I think, especially when you're any kind of a historian, you, you get lazy and you think, well, other people will do this. Like, don't, don't stress too much about it. Somebody's going to do it. But then you think, well, maybe not, you know, I mean, there's a good chance mm-hmm. that no one else mm-hmm. is going to do it. And so mm-hmm. if you don't do it, um, it's going to be gone. So, you know, that, that's why I sometimes do feel like, you know, I hope I have enough time to do everything. I have all these plans of things I want to do. But um, and you you mentioned Jim, and it's funny. It just popped in my head, too, because I was listening to the the Jim Cornette drive through uh, one one of his two podcasts. And your dad is the first line of the theme song. Right. Who, who still remembers Pepero Furpo? And it's your everyone and- knows it's corny. <laughs> That's right. And I'd like to think that a lot of other people beyond him uh, remember. But um, the the um, I, I wanted to mention too the the monsoon thing with the WWF Coliseum video that your dad's on. It reminded me of the fact because of the way that Gorilla describes your dad on there. It reminded it was actually Jesse. Sorry, it was actually Jesse Ventura. If it's oh the gosh, same you're one right. I'm thinking of it was Jesse the Body. You're right. Yeah, but he I- did cross paths with Monsoon. He did. He did cross paths with Monsoon and Lou Albano, maybe in Hawaii. I was mi- I was mixing it up, yeah, because when I was I was catching up on all these old WWF videos, and there's one I think it's like the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams. One is hosted okay. by Gorilla, and the okay. strangest and strongest is hosted by Jesse. Right, and okay. the way he described your dad, which in a way kind of breaks kayfabe a little bit, because your dad was to me like the ultimate example of the wrestler who is nothing like what his persona is (laughs) like you know like that classic example of you see the wrestler who's like a maniac wild man and then you catch him in his private time and he's like reading a book and sitting by the fire and smoking a pipe and all and like that your dad is like the perfect example of that but they even mentioned jesse even says that he spoke what you know seven languages or whatever it was and that that always seems to be the thing that, that people will always say well do you do know 
that Pampero Furpo was actually <laughs> a highly educated man who yes. spoke many languages. He was very cultured and very refined. Yes. Like that's the thing yes. that everybody says, you know. About Isn't that so funny? And it was funny. I, I know exactly what we were talking about. And the Jesse line too, he said, but he said that getting in the ring brought out his animalistic side. Like he had to right. put some little you, to you know, explanation it, for like, like had, the right. Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. And even back then it was so funny, Brian, because he has these clippings in his scrapbooks from major newspapers like the uh, Los Angeles, I want to say the LA Times, definitely the big paper in Los Angeles, the Detroit Free Press. He had this, uh, the Minneapolis in Minnesota, the Star Tribune, things from the Chicago Sun-Times. He, they got, he got major uh, press coverage from these really prominent newspapers. And sometimes those articles also mention that duality in an interesting way, or he would say it, you know, even though he was uh, raised in the jungles of South America and he has this, you know, they, they would, it was interesting because those articles, even in the major newspapers were kind of a mix of this fact and fiction. And they yes. would sometimes, yeah, like talk about that. Like he's, or, or he would say, you know, when I get into the ring, I have this wild, you know, savage nature that takes over, but outside of the ring, I can be a proper gentleman. Like he would kind of explain it himself. It was this interesting duality and certainly, um, or, you know, maybe, maybe in the, to some extent that was a little true. I don't know, but he was very <laughs> peaceful and very loving as a father. He was never violent. He had like, he would yell, he, had, he could have a temper, but it wasn't violent. You know, it was just like the three of us kids, just, you know, like little hijinks and stuff and he would get angry, but it wasn't um, anything other, you know, other than, just normal, like parenting, right? Like he was never right. violent. He was never, uh, and he didn't have a temper. He wouldn't get into fights with people like out on the street and things like that. You know, it just wasn't who he was. He was very, like you said, just um, like respectful, just gently carried himself well. I told on the 605 that when my dad was in assisted living toward the end of his life, one of the people who lived in the um, same facility told me, your dad is always so well-dressed. He said, he's so sharply dressed and carries himself so well. He said, he must've been in the fashion industry. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, I just, my brother and I still <laughs> laugh about that. I thought if you can, and I showed him some pictures, I said, this is my dad. I pulled up my phone and showed him some YouTube videos. I never would believe it. I would never believe it. You know, right. and, um, Joanne Dusick told some stories to me about how when my dad went to Omaha and sometimes my dad's parents, he brought his parents and his sisters mm -hmm. from Argentina to the United States. They went up through Brownsville, Texas. And that was just such a point of pride for him. He said he always dreamt about coming to the United States as a boy. So that was my dream. And he did a really great interview with Mike Mooneyham toward the end of my dad's life. And he said, I fulfilled my destiny. And that just gave me so much mm -hmm. peace and uh, joy as he was as I, I knew he was, you know, his passing was imminent and I thought he fulfilled his destiny. You know, you don't get much better than that. But he would take his sisters and his parents sometimes to a place where he was wrestling. They wouldn't go to the shows, but they might be in the city where he was working. And he, Joanne Dusick told me about how he went out to dinner in, in Omaha and he was wrestling in Omaha and he was kind of growling and kind of guttural and like sharp with the servers. And there were stories about how people saw him and he had an raw t-bone steak on his plate you know thing i don't know if he ever went that far but she said your your mother reprimanded him like this is not how you behave in public you need to be and he um he just kind of like looked at her totally like you know i have to do this like this is just how i have to be out in public you know so if he was in a place where he thought he would get recognized or he was sure. appearing he would still keep kayfabe to the extent that he could without being the same with the sheik 
Yes, yes, okay. yes. They were like two of a kind in that like way. Joyce, yeah, would, Joyce was... would pay for the gas. Joyce would, um, you know, give the <laughs> orders at the restaurants and he would just quietly yes. sit there and nod his head. And, you know, and 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 I mean, they had a way back then, like you hinted about it with, you know, oh, I go into my animalistic mode or whatever, where they would they would give you little glimpses. They would have to sometimes bow to reality but then they would pr- yes. try and protect it like with the sheep yes. a lot of times they would they would try, i remember reading these things where the reporters would sort of say well you know we think that he played football at such and such a school yes. but but then they would go yeah but he he does come from this wealthy oil family from syria <laughs> and he really is this arab sheik so they would balance it or like <laughs> again i'm watching the gorilla monsoon stuff and now this is this is now the 1970s He's speaking English. He's a totally normal. He doesn't have the beard anymore. And they're still saying he's from Manchuria. You know, this guy's from Manchuria. (laughs) And look, I'm half Italian, so I could say this. But you look at the pictures of him, especially away from the ring, which would run all the time in wrestling magazines. And and you look and you go, this is a big Italian guy from New Jersey. You you know what I mean? (laughs) It's about as obvious as it can be. But but so it's like they would sometimes sort of like um, loosen it up a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm always really proud of the influence that that Detroit territory had on Randy Poffo, Randy Savage and how the way that he acted with his with ballet with his ballet manager, Liz, was similar to the way that she acted with. um, Was it Salome? What was his? It was um, 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 Salima, Salima. Yeah. Salima. Okay, I didn't. It's think been a couple Salima of years something. now since I finished something. the book. Yeah. <laughs> Princess Salima. Yeah, the way that. Yeah. Yes, the way that he would like hide behind her in this heel way, or just you know browbeat her into you know verbally like holding the ropes and stuff. I thought that's right. like very Randy Savage and Liz. You know, it was. Well, that, what um, I thought what I thought was interesting about that because I I would watch a few of those. There, there's a really good match where you see a lot of that that's out there on YouTube. And it's not from Detroit. It's like from pretty early in Sheik's career. I forget where it is. It might be, uh, I don't want to hazard a guess, but it's early on and he's got the princess. And the interesting thing is, and they would do this sometimes, you couldn't get away with this today, but part of the way they would try to get heat was they would insinuate that the girl, we we didn't know it was Joyce, obviously, but the girl, they would try to insinuate that she was not Arab like him, that she was an American girl or that she was white, God forbid. And he had, (laughs) he had like enslaved her almost as if to say, well, that makes it worse. She's an American girl. Oh my God. Well, if she was just like his Arab girlfriend, we wouldn't care as much, but you're telling me this is American girl that he did this to. So they, you know, they would, they would play that up too, which was interesting. Oh, that's so funny. I, you know, I was thinking too about sometimes it's so nice to be able to talk to Joanne Dusick because there's things in the magazines and articles. And again, even things in respected established newspapers that I'll call Joanne and say, is this really true? Like sometimes I won't even know. And there was one example was my dad had a big vertical scar uh, kind of below his sternum that ran up and down 
his abdomen and kind of like vertical past his belly button. And it said that he was knifed by fans in Omaha. And I asked Joanne, I said, did that happen? And she said, no, that didn't happen. But I have to ask her because my dad wouldn't tell me, or I'd say like, how did that happen? He wouldn't tell me, you know, (laughs) I think, you know, I think at that point, like maybe in his mid seventies or on, he would have explained things to me if I would have asked him. But, um, when I was a kid, I used to ask him those things. And he would come to my class when I was little as a child and do show and tell and just talk, but he wouldn't talk about the business stuff. He would just say, I'm gonna show you, I'll body slam you, but I'll be gentle with you. So it's not like giving away any of the professional secrets. It's like, I'm not gonna let you have it, but I'll, and like all the little third graders would line up and he would like turn them over, you know, on their feet if they wanted to be <laughs> body slammed or he would, he would show my brother and my sister and me Al Garfio sometimes. And he would just give it like the smallest squeeze on our temples. And it hurt. Like he had such big, strong hands. It was crazy. Um, And then also when I became a teacher, he would come and talk to the students and he would tell them about no, you know, uh, like he would tell them, say to ask them, that was in the Haiti. I started teaching in 1997 when I was 22. And that was in the NWO, WCW. A lot of my students would make little wolf pack gestures. They would talk about the wolf pack and wrestling. And so they were talking to him about it. And he was 77 at the time and very clear cognitively and physically. And he would tell them, you know, don't do what you see on TV. Like that's very like real injuries. Like don't do that, you know? And he would um, kind of show them like, like not breaking kayfabe at all, but just kind of showing them like little things or saying things like, um, cause they would say like, well, is it fake or they get into character? And he said, but there's still like very real injury. And he would tell stories too. You'd always tell the kids he had a very, he's a proponent of a very clean lifestyle. I think that was contributed definitely to him making it just a little short of his 90th birthday, you know, no smoking, no drinking, no drugs. I mean, have a beer every once in a while, but he was somebody who never, uh, he said always training. And he would tell the students that too, like stay away from cigarettes, stay away from drinks. He'd say, stay away from the easy life. That was how his father had taught him and how he taught my sister and my brother and me. And my brother is just a complete health fanatic. You know, I, I also like, I don't really drink. I don't never smoke, never did drugs. I think that that clean lifestyle was, he really saw himself as an ambassador and as a role model to these kids who looked up to him. And I always really respected that about him. You know, I, I had a question about that. It it sounds like it's such a dumb question, but it's one of the things that always fascinates me, especially from that era and the guys that had that kind of ethos that you're describing and that were fairly old school type of guys. And uh, how do I put this? Larry, so- Larry Hennig comes to mind too. That was somebody else he really oh, liked, really? Larry the Axe Hennig. Yeah. Well, now your dad came up as a wrestler in late 50s into the 60s at a, at a time. And, and your dad already is, is kind of this old school type of guy, you know, and he's coming up in the business at a time when you know, people don't like, let me put it this way. If somebody looking like Pampero Furpa walked down the street today in New York city, he might not even get a second look, but <laughs> right. back then, back then, you know, people didn't, men did not look that way. You know, they didn't even have beards, you know, or that kind of hair. And your dad, I venture to guess if he hadn't been a pro wrestler, he would never have looked that way. So how did he feel all those years about having to go around with all that hair on his face and his head all the time. Did he ever talk about that? Did he care? You know, it didn't seem to bother him. He would wear his hair back up like, um, 
Mike Leno said, your dad was one of the first I ever saw wearing a man bun. I was like, yeah, he did. Like he would put it, he'd wear like a low ponytail or he'd kind of like put it back into a bun. I said he was very ahead of his time. Um, it didn't bother him because he would, it, his hair and beard looked a lot wilder when he was in the ring, but outside of the ring, I don't know if he used some kind of product on it, but it didn't look uh, nearly as wild when he was outside of the ring. He would put his hair back. Um, he would maybe like comb down his beard in a way that didn't make it look so, uh, so crazy. So it never really seemed to bother him at all, um, actually. But he did, after he went through the divorce in 1985, he shaved his beard and I was traumatized by seeing him without that beard. I thought, man, that was, that was like such a key piece of who he was. And I don't know if that I know they say like when women go through breakups, they cut their hair or something. I thought maybe like thinking about now, I thought maybe that was it. Like maybe it was just, you know, he kind of like shed some of that old persona or something. But I, yeah, I don't guessing, think that seemed to bother him. I'm guessing that he probably had not been clean shaven in about 25 years by that point. Right. That's I mean, exactly right. That's exactly right. Amazing. I think he I think he liked the beard. And I think also, you know, my dad worked up until, like I said, 1981. He, there's footage of him doing a battle royal with Andre and um, Diaz and I think Giant Baba's even on the card in Hawaii, 1980, 1981. I thought my dad was born in 1930, so he's 50 in that battle royal. And so I think also the beard and the hair helped obscure his age. He always looked really young though. I mean, he really did. Even when he was 70, he looked like he was in his 50s. When he was in his 50s, he looked like he was in his 30s. So I think also though, the, the beard and the hair were particularly camouflaging in a way. Right. They made right. him look, um, you, know, you couldn't tell how old he was, but it was yeah. just part of his professional, you know, appearance. I don't know yeah, why. I the, think also the, the too strange thoughts enter my head with when I'm when I'm. No, I think <laughs> I think it's great. I think too though the way that he carried himself, like he, um, I don't know, he had a lot of he had a lot of confidence. He just came across as very uh, like just sincere and respectful, and um, even you know when he was out in public. So he, you know, he loved being in Japan. He loved the culture. Like he was somebody who um, was just very carried himself. That's what I know he liked about Bockwinkle and Bockwinkle liked about him that in Bockwinkle did the address for Cauliflower Alley Club and Danny Hodge also both, it was like Danny Hodge, Bobby Heenan, Nick Bockwinkle, and they all spoke about my father. And, you know, Bockwinkle said he was an ambassador and a true gentleman regardless of where he was. So I think that, and, you know, maybe just from the closeness that he had with his parents, he had two younger sisters, you know, he's the oldest boy and he always just really, was respectful and um, and it wasn't to say that he didn't have fun, but he didn't join in in things that he thought were uh, like, like I want to say immoral. You know, he said he would say things like, you know, everyone has their own um, their own like proclivities or everyone has their own preferences. And there was a, some audio that Brian last got on the 605 of my dad in Hawaii. He said it was on his 38th birthday and he just sounds so young. He's talking to Ed Francis, the promoter. And he said, well, I just had some milk. He says like milk with his accent. And because <laughs> the promoter says, well, you know, are you going to have like some vodka or I was going to be drinking? And he says, well, you know, like everyone can do their own thing. But for me, it's like the choices I made. So he, um, it was, it just was, I don't know. I'm just really proud of the legacy that he left. I'm proud of the influence he had on, um, you know, different performers of today's generations or that people still remember him. And he's, um, yeah, I just, I think about him all the time. You know, I think about all the, the struggle, you know, he said it was such a struggle for him to leave Argentina and go to different countries in South America and go to Mexico and go to the United States. And he said many times, 
I would just be looking at myself in the mirror and I just would be so exhausted or I'd want to quit or I think, you know, maybe I need to go home. And he said, I just would give myself a pep talk and you have to keep going. And he was always very motivational and encouraging with my sister and my brother and me, like you can do this. You know, I look at what a strong person he was to have made it in such a tough business. Um, You know, he had his teeth knocked out. He had his ribs broken. I, I should circle back to the sternum, the scar for that. That was from you know, it was not at the knife fight in Omaha, but he had some diverticulitis where there was like an intestinal perforation and it was a really horrible, um, uh, like a surgery that he had to have. And he was hospitalized for a few months in Hawaii and it wasn't wrestling related, but, you know, he just had to keep going and, and right. push through pain. And um, he said a, a couple of times too, like wrestlers tried to injure him. Carl Gotch was one that he, um, never spoke fondly of because he said, gotch, they wrestled in Hawaii together. He said, gotch dropped him on his head intentionally trying to break his neck. And he said, if it weren't for my 23 inch neck, I would have been a vegetable. So, you know, he, um, he was one of the boys with certain boys, you know, he always was diplomatic and tried to be friendly with everyone, but you know, all those different personalities. And he said, success breeds envy, success breeds jealousy. He was so popular in Hawaii. He was so popular there and everyone would imitate him. Dave Meltzer says that too, here in the Bay area, everyone on the playground would imitate my dad toward the end of my dad's career and just his accent, his guttural uh, way of speaking and the, Oh yeah. And so um, he was just was tremendously popular and charismatic and people were jealous of that and tried to injure him or tried to uh, take him down a, a notch, you know, and he, he was again, all business, you know, he didn't speculate with people physically and try to injure them. And he would wince when he saw those kinds of bumps that people were taking on footage, especially yeah. of modern wrestling. He just would wince about that. And he would kind of frame it as um, like what amazing athletes they are, but like, what are they doing to their bodies? This is like, a, it's a business, you know what yeah. I mean? Like you don't have to do that. So that was always his perspective. And he knew that people had families and they were trying to make a living. And, um, and I was going to say too, this just popped in my head. We were talking about Detroit. My brother loved Igor. And so listening to Cornette, you know, again, I was born in 75, but my brother was like five, six, seven, when he watched my dad, um, in Detroit. I don't know that my brother actually went to the shows, but I think he saw it maybe on like the local television and sure. he would go, Igor, Igor, like he loved <laughs> Igor. And then listening to Jim about how Igor was supposed to be a, like kind of a man child who appealed to children and like his kind of funny outfit with the suspenders and he would bring like a little toy to the ring. I thought, well, that makes sense. Cause that was yeah. my, my brother's favorite when he was little. That was the idea. And, and yeah. how, how ironic, you know, and I think about this when I was especially learning so much about your dad, when I wrote the book, I think about how the irony of, you know, the and the the wrestler who appeared to be the wildest and craziest and most dangerous and most vicious, you know, yeah. is actually, you know, one of the most grounded kind of yes. men of respect of the wrestling business. Like, because look, I, I mean, I I can say this too. I've been uh, I've been in and around wrestling on the periphery for you know close to thirty years now, and wrestlers are can be very flaky and and a lot of them look the business has attracted a lot of people who are very questionable people and and in some cases even very degenerate people and and no well it's a fact and, and your dad was not one i of just those laughed because that was that was one of his favorite words he go like degenerate. degenerate and then so whenever lanny poffa would uh tell stories or him, he go well he would say like he's a degenerate person or something. <laughs> that was one of his favorite words. And I thought, oh, he would have gotten a big kick out of like, well, he wouldn't have appreciated the de- degeneration X with all this sexuality and stuff right. like that. But there's the fact that like degenerate, like that was 
totally one of his terms that he would use that um, well because i'm sure <laughs> i can only imagine you know in that era or any era and being on the road and wrestling and all that i can guarantee that your dad saw a lot of stuff that he did not approve yeah. of you know what i mean yes. and so to keep his his morals and his integrity and to be a man of respect in pro wrestling as a wrestler i think is is a very commendable thing and i and i find it so interesting that you know, from a fan perspective, not the first name you would probably think of, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. knowing his character, <laughs> but he was not at all, you know, like, like that. Yeah. And I, I just think that's what, one of the things that makes him such a fascinating person and wrestler. And I mean, and I can't, I mean, we could talk about him forever as you could see, but I, I can't thank you enough for even coming on and, and being able to share these things. I think that we should start at some point. I want to start like a club or a fraternity of all the, all the children and grandchildren of wrestlers and just kind of save all these amazing stories. It's so great. I would love that. It's been just such a, a delight, such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, Brian, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And like you said, I could just talk about my dad for hours. And I wanted to, was one other thing that I wanted to say, because there are some people with, um, a lot of wrestling knowledge or interest in history to say, oh, he was a professor in Ohio and he went to law school. And he says that himself in different interviews, but he never made it, he never went past high school. And it was interesting, one of his sisters got a law degree and was even practicing law in her twenties in Argentina. And another sister went into finance, his two sisters. And he never, he never went into college. He said, I chose the sporting life at a young age and that was the path I took. And um, he was more like self-taught, always reading, always, there was a really good black and white photo of him and he's holding the book, I've been the terrible. And he's reading it. Like when he was the character of I've been the terrible. And, um, he, he read things in Spanish, like I've been, you know, Yvonne El Blair, and he has this book. And so he was, um, just self-taught, like never had formal education, but you know, his education was the wrestling business and traveling the world. And I think one of the ways that he maintained his integrity was just associating with people, who shared his values. And there were people like that, like you mentioned, Bruno and people like Nick Bockwinkle and um, those two come to mind, Danny Hodge, he loved Bobby Heenan. Like there were a lot of people who, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, you know, he's Mormon. Like my dad loved him. Like they, right. you know, there's pictures of them having a, having a beer together, but he was somebody else, like a clean lifestyle, always training. And so uh, he loved the crusher, you know, he was just, um, there, there were, uh, he didn't make friends in the wrestling business and he connected with them and always connected with the fans. And he, uh, he never had any regrets about that. He said that wrestling was what allowed him to provide for his family, to see the world, to come to the United States. I mean, he fulfilled his, his destiny and his American dream through wrestling. And he always remained grateful. And my family's grateful also for that. I also love how much respect that he always seemed to everything you read about him and this, even the stories you tell the respect that he had for the business, because I know it sounds, it, you know, it, it sounds like it wouldn't make sense, but there are a lot of wrestlers who, who don't have it to that degree, especially in that era. There were a lot of guys that looked at wrestling and whether wrong or right, but they looked at it as a hustle or just a con or just, you know, and, or, you know, not that, I mean, you don't want the wrestlers to be marks for themselves or anything like that. Like, that's a lot of what mm -hmm. we have today where the wrestlers are the marks. But, I mean, they didn't all take it so seriously as something to be so truly respected the way that your dad did. I think that was something really special that he brought to it. That, And I think Bruno did, too, and that's probably why they got mm -hmm. along so, so well. People who really... Everyone talks about respecting the business, but I don't think that everyone does to the same degree, even when they're in it. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate that. I agree with you about that, that my dad did have a lot of, um, you know, he saw he wasn't naive or you know, certainly he did. He was wrestling for three decades and all over the world, 21 countries and five different continents. And he um, he saw all the different sides of it and right. just maintained that's why I always really appreciate about him. He was an individual, like he maintained his own, um, his own personal ethics, his own professional ethics. Like he, he was always just was very diplomatic and didn't know the language coming in. And that made it especially hard to deal with promoters who are trying to speculate with paydays and things like that. I mean, he, he just was very, uh, just gifted. He had a lot of gifts physically, mentally, you know, um, I know it's hard to, it's hard to explain, but he, like, he really hung on to himself as a person. Like he didn't right. let himself be taken advantage of. And I think that was also maybe part of the falling out with the sheik that, you know, just felt like, why are you taking advantage of trying to take advantage, speculate with me after all this long friendship and business. But yeah, right. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I really, I really do. And he, he always found this thing. He found people who were like-minded. I said, Larry Hennig was another one that my dad respected who always, you know, was a family man and um, had kind of the same, ethos as my dad did yeah well i i mean you you've represented his legacy very well today oh, and i'm, thank I'm you. very thank glad you. to hear to have been able to have this conversation i know your your kids are getting restless back there so i gotta let you go <laughs> you can see them <laughs> i hope you I also, can't hear them too much no no it's not but but i was thinking i hope that they also have some understanding and appreciation of of that their grandfather was a legend, you know, I mean, I know they're very far removed from it, but I hope that they understand that because they should, but um, yeah, they, they do. My son is um, my, they're both athletic. My daughter does track and softball. My son played baseball and he loves football. And he said the other day, he said, maybe I should try my hand at wrestling. I said, yeah, I could, you know, but he, uh, I was watching him. He, the way he tackles people, I just know that's like a Pompero Furbo <laughs> takedown. I'm like, it's just genetic. Like he's got, he has the same type of athletic, like athleticism that my, my dad had, and I tell him that, like, he's got a similar build too, just like real uh, strong. And yeah, they do. They have, they, it's so great. So grateful for the internet. So grateful for podcasts, for YouTube, for all these um, platforms where you can see, I wish there was more footage that existed, but they definitely know who their grandfather was and is very proud of them. Well, that makes me great to hear. Uh, that me makes too. me happy to hear, I should say. And, uh, and and again, thanks for doing this. This has been such a pleasure and and an honor for me. So So thank you. Oh, me too, Brian. Thank you. I, I just really, again, appreciate all the hard work that you've done with your book and with the podcast. And thank you for indulging me and letting me tell some stories. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Mary Fries, the daughter of the wild bull of the pampas, Pompero Furpo. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a whole lot of fun. And I hope you'll check out some great Furpo matches and promos to commemorate the man and his great legacy. And you know what? As a matter of fact, what I will do once this episode is up is I will post a few of those great matches and promos to the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group for you guys to check out. Oh, you didn't know about the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group? I only talk about it every single week on the show. If you haven't joined, please do because there's lots of great content just like that posted in the group every single day. So anyway, that was episode 64. And I want to say, looking ahead to next week, we will have as our guest another luminary from the classic days of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and the so-called After Mags. I'm talking about Bob Smith, 
Bob is somebody who kind of walked away from the wrestling world a number of years ago. He's been getting involved again in wrestling media, and I was happy to have him again on the show. I was recently on his, and I think you'll really enjoy that conversation next week. Also want to say, we have other wonderful guests coming up. I've mentioned that Jonard Soli, the son of Gordon Soli, will be a guest coming up. And I'd also like to mention Steve Anderson, who was the co-author with Bobby the Brain Heenan of Bobby's autobiography a number of years back, and who also runs the Bobby Heenan-related podcast known as Weasel Tales. He's going to be a guest coming up. You know, I talked to Steve for the Gorilla Monsoon book, talking about the relationship of Gorilla and Bobby. And we wound up, just like the Ken Patera conversation, we wound up turning it into a podcast episode. So that will be here in the weeks to come. Keep listening. Stay tuned. So many ways that you can find Shut Up and Wrestle. You can go to suawpod.com. That's our website. You can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict. So many places that you can find Shut Up and Wrestle. And honestly, the many other things that I work on, that I create for you fine wrestling fans. I'm also the co-host of the PWI podcast, which you can find in all those same places. My book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and elsewhere in digital form, print form, and audio form, narrated by yours truly. If you're looking for the magazines for which I write... Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the granddaddy of them all, can be purchased at pwi-online.com. There's also the UK-based and wonderful and amazing Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And on Facebook, you will find my author page, Brian Solomon Writer, And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and leaving you with a laurel hearty handshake. So long, wrestling fans. 